Hello, family, and welcome to Kingwood Methodist. In John 4.23, Jesus states that a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. As we gather at church and open God's Word, we are not just coming together for the sake of gathering, but also to learn the truth of God and how we can grow to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we continually surrender our lives to the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the type of worshipers our Heavenly Father seeks. Let's dive in together. Before we move into today's uh, text of the sermon, I think it's good to get some context. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah. And so... Jeremiah introduces the idea that you're going to read in a minute about the idea of a new covenant. It's about a covenant written on hearts, not on tablets. And what this covenant is about is about the heart of what it means for us to renew the covenant. In this spiritual detox series, what we've taken is the Wesleyan Methodist emphasis in covenant renewal and unpacked it throughout the month. So in the same way that last week we looked at some of the things of Wesley's covenant uh, advice to a people called Methodist, we're gonna unpack what it means that covenant renewal for us today. This passage in Jeremiah chapter 31 is often read in isolation and sometimes taken out of its original context. Doesn't mean it's wrong, it's just sort of a fuller and deeper and more authentic understanding of what it means that Jeremiah was talking about. He says in Jeremiah chapter one, in the beginning of his ministry, if you look in your Bible, you'll find out that this is the word that's given to Jeremiah as a task. God said, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build up and to plant. There's going to be a 40-year series where Jeremiah the prophet is going to be prophesying to Judah, which is the northern kingdom, and to Israel, the southern kingdom. So you're going to find two references in a minute. They're both taken into captivity. Jeremiah comes to witness their utter defeat and dismantling at the hands of other nations. And so when you read the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah, it's a bit of an unrelenting series of doom and gloom. This, you have disobeyed, you haven't listened, and there's all these horrible things that are going to be happening. Then in chapter 30, there's a turn that happens. So if you look at Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3, you'll find a pivot point. In the pivot point, says this, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. So those first 29 chapters about the words of warnings about all that's happened, but then chapter 30, there's this turn and this change of tone continues all the way into chapter 33. And it's just part of Jeremiah, it's often recalled the book of consolation or the book of comfort. Whereas the first 29 chapters are words of warning chapter 30 and forward come to be words of comfort and consolation that God hasn't forgotten you, that you're going to be restored. So this text today is about the new covenant and therefore it's part of the book of comfort or the book of consolation. And it looks beyond the present desperate plight of the people at a time when they wonder where God is, if God would heal their wounds and bring them back from the land of exile. It's a restoration text. It speaks to us, I think, also words of hope when we wonder, God, where are you? When we hear a diagnosis, 
when we find an unintended change of some kind or a brokenness in a relationship, we often will want to say, God, God, where are you? God's been the same place he's always been. He's with you in the joy. He's with you in the sorrow. He's with you in the good times. He's with you in the bad. It's just that most often when things are going well, we have a tendency not to talk to God, but to relish the joy and the comfort and the good times. But oh, the moment there's a challenge, we tend to turn to our faith. What would life be like if we turn to God in the good times with that same desperate plea to praise and get his guidance in the good time as we do in the times of struggle? Let's learn more now about what it means to be people of a new covenant. I want to invite you to stand as you are able. Words to the text are on the screen as well. If you've got your Bible with you, you'll turn to chapter 31. Uh, chapter 31, verses uh, 31 through 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, and as you are, we'll once again use Wesley's covenant prayer to launch us into this text. Let's pray together. The words are on the screen. I am, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put us to what you will. Rank us with what you will. Put us to, put us to suffering. Let us be employed for you or laid aside for you exalted for you or brought low for you. Let us be full. Let us be empty. Let us have all things. Let us have nothing. We freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are ours and yours. So be it. And the covenant which we have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. So John Wesley wrote a journal, and oftentimes he would record what was happening. So sometimes in his journal, he would say, went to Bristol at 4 a.m. and preached at the chapel, was thrown out and told never to come back. Preached this place at noon, was thrown out, told never to come back. Preached in the evening at this place, was thrown out and told never to come back. I'd love to figure out what were the sermons that Wesley preached at the places he was thrown out and never allowed to come back. We do know exactly what he said the last time that he preached at Oxford. He was required to preach once every three years at Oxford because he was a fellow with Oxford. But he wasn't invited to come back after the last time he preached. And the record says as such, Mr. Wesley would have been far greater received had he not emphasized repentance so strongly. And he literally called out and said to this group at Oxford, I beg to wonder, are you even Christian based on what you do? 
university folk do not like to be called that if they claim to be a Christian university. He was never invited back. So this call to repentance, this call to turning, this reorientation is always been at the heart. And so at the heart of Wesley's covenant renewal is how do we take this as a, a intentional step of full surrender? Uh, there's an old hymn we used to sing and still do. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. And it's got this chorus, when sung correctly, it's absolutely beautiful. When sung out of pitch, is really kind of creepy, right? So it's, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender, I surrender all. So Wesley writes, after the covenant service of January the 1st of 1775, he writes this. We had a larger congregation at the renewal of the covenant than we have had for many years and I do not know that ever we have had a greater blessing. Afterwards, many desired to return thanks, either for a sense of pardon, which is forgiveness, for full salvation, meaning they fully surrender their life to Christ, or for a fresh manifestation of his grace, healing all their backslidings. The backsliding is what it means. It's a uh, a lot of times it's called, uh, you just slide back to your old ways of doing. So it's called backsliding. Or as the country western song uh, states, daddy was a front row Christian would share a back row sin. Right? So we had that tendency to slide back. And in Wesley's time, this covenant service would actually be preceded by a call to a prayer, fasting, and reflection. Well, it's kind of what we're going to do in the season of Lent. So we're going to use this series to unpack the covenant prayer in the last several weeks so that when we get to Lent, we can begin to say, okay, if we're saying, God, I'm going to surrender my life to you. Uh, this is the covenant. I'm going to be your people. I'm going to be your disciple. We're going to focus on the values of a kingdom life in the season of Lent. We'll be launching that on Sunday. Actually, we'll be launching it that on Wednesday night at the Ash Wednesday services, which, by the way, given the current challenges of configuration, will be all uh, Ash Wednesday services. In the evening, we'll be upstairs in E200-201. The come and go services in the morning will be in the chapel space. So how does the covenant relationship between God and his people get restored? The text tells us clearly that at that time, I'll be the God of all the families of Israel and they'll be my people. God is claiming that he'll be us. He'll be our God. But how can a covenant relationship so utterly broken be restored? A people who have failed to live up to the covenant in the past, what guarantee is there on God's part that we're going to be any better for the future? That brings us to a question. What do we learn about covenant from this text? Well, the first thing that's important to learn about this sense of covenant, where God is unchanging, is that covenant is primarily understood as a relationship. Covenant is about relationship. I mean, the words used in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32 that describe this are very particular. Jeremiah proclaims that I was their husband, says the Lord, capturing the imagery of a marital relationship, a very intimate, mutual relationship between a husband and a wife. It's about relationship. And, and this term covenant in our everyday use is primarily used in a legal kind of term. So if we talk about a property having a covenant agreement, like I can remember in Allen, Texas years ago when we started a church, that there was a covenant agreement attached to the land that we sold, which meant that the church, uh, the, the conference bought this big piece of land and it had this restrictive covenant because it blocked somebody in the back that 
These people could have access for egress and regress across the property. It's eventually where a street would go, but that covenant legally stuck with the property. You couldn't undo it. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about legal agreements in the sense of covenant. We're talking about a relationship of covenant. Here's how Daniel Bratcher says it. We need to recall that the concept of covenant was not viewed in the Old Testament in legal terms. Covenant was a metaphorical way to describe the relationship between God and the people in terms of mutual interaction. God revealed himself to the people, I will be your God, and expected the people to respond to that revelation with worship and faithfulness. You shall be my people. The breaking of the covenant then was not the violation of a law that required a legal penalty. That's sin. Okay? We're talking about covenant relationship. It wasn't a violation of the law that required a legal penalty, but the disruption of a relationship that needed healing and restoration. Ultimately, that healing relationship is restored in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate fulfillment of that. But this time it's about a covenant that God extends. You see, in the old covenant, it couldn't be resurrected as if nothing had happened. Uh, certainly not by the people who destroyed it. Just say, oh God, we just want to do over. Something new and radical needed to be done if there was to be a new relationship between God and his people. So the first point to understand about a covenant is that a true covenant that we make is, in a biblical concept, is about a relationship between God and us. Or as God says to Jeremiah, I will be your God and you will be my people. You said that a few minutes ago when you said in the covenant prayer, you're mine and I'm yours. That's what it means to be in covenant. Secondly, this covenant is written on people's hearts. What people needed, what you and I need, is not a new law, another law, a change of the law. What we need is a change of our heart so that we might remain faithful to the relationship that God has called us to. The amazing thing is that God always takes the initiative. God's already done all the work. Left our own devices, our own covenant relationship with God is fragile, easily disrupted, we get easily distracted, we fall away quickly, and like ancient Israel, we're tempted by many foreign gods. Now, we can say we don't set up altars to other gods, but my friend, you have a very portable altar that most of you carry with you all the time. It's called an iPhone or a Android or any other device that you have. Even burner phones can be altars to a foreign god. But you know, here's the beautiful thing. God isn't left, God isn't left us to our own devices. God promises to bring change and bring the ability to change, to renew our minds, and write his law on our hearts. So how does that happen? How does God get there? How do, we, how do we pursue, as Wesley talked about in this pamphlet to advice to a people called Methodist 200 plus years ago, how do we pursue a holiness of heart in life? So as I prepared for this day, I thought, you know, um, what we're asking you as a church to do is to be more faithful in your scripture reading. So rather than go find uh, something that someone recommends as a three or four step kind of process for holiness of heart and light, I thought, well, why don't we do the thing we should all be doing, which is what does scripture tell us about holiness of heart and life? So we're going to revert back to 1 Peter 
not vert, vert back, but we're going to leap forward to, if you would, in your scripture, 1 Peter. It's going to be all the way on the right-hand side of your New Testament. You'll find 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 3 Peter. There's three, actually three different books there. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, the culmination of these words to the early church say that you shall be holy for I am holy. In other words, who God is in Christ is who God calls us to be. So this is what the text says, and I'm reading from the RSV translation. If you have an NIV translation, you're going to find that your second word after therefore is protect. We're going to unpack the word gird and build on what Clint mentioned last week about girding. So therefore, gird up your minds, be sober, set your hope fully upon the grace that is coming to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. Not part of your conduct, not some of your conduct, but in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. The word therefore in this passage, to do some Bible lesson teaching, is when you see therefore, you say, what preceded the word therefore? What's preceded the word therefore in chapter 1 is all the foundational framework about forgiveness being offered in Christ, salvation coming through faith in Christ. It assumes on the, on the other side, this side of therefore, all this is the groundwork. So once you've accepted Christ, once you've been grafted in as a new believer, once you've come to Christ, confessed your sin, what now? Well, you grow in grace. You grow in a pursuit of holiness and heart and life. So this passage from 1 Peter outlines for us four very specific things. So let's let the Bible teach us the way of Scripture. But the first thing that says is, gird up your minds. Now use the RSV translation because the word in the NIV is protect, but this word gird goes back to where Clint mentioned last week that it's a sense of gathering. Most of the time, the clothing in that day was not pants like most of us wear or a suit and tie that's similar for recording day is preaching on Sunday. It is about pulling and tightening together that wide, longer outer garment. Mentioned last week, remember how Clint talked last week about how does it make sense that the first thing in the armor of God is to put on the belts of righteousness? Who just wakes up and says, oh, got to put my belt on first? You don't do that. But, but in this text, a sense of what's already clothed, it would take the large outer layer and you would gather it together so that if you're going to make movement or you're going to work or you're going to run, you wouldn't be inhibited by it. So now you can begin to see the imagery. We would say today, hey, be alert, use your head. Or sometimes I can remember when I was growing up in high school, if I got in trouble, my mother would say, what were you thinking? And I would say, well, it's not what I was thinking, it's what you thought I was thinking. I thought that was hilarious. I didn't drive for two weeks. <laughs> Became very unfunny quickly. But what... But when you get this word gird, this is a gathering up, basically holy living necessarily involves your intellect, your mind, your thoughts, and it's a proactive effort on your part to gather it together. To in the NIV, that's why the NIV says, just protect your minds, right? So gather it together. In other words, don't mindlessly stroll through social media because when you do, it impacts your thinking. 
So what's the second thing? First, we're going to gird up our minds. We're going to protect our minds. Secondly, we're going to be sober. Peter says to be sober. Simply put, holy living involves an exercise in self-control over self-indulgence. Or as we would often say, someone who is sober is not under the influence of drug or alcohol. Holy living is looking for God to get you through the struggles, not consuming something that sort of anesthetizes or dulls you to the struggles. Because my friends, here's the difference. When you are inebriated with the half-truths and empty promises that the culture offers, the problems will be there when you sober up or those temporary memes and ideologies fail under the weight of the daily reality. But when you remain sober in the faith, when you pursue holy living, you're relying on the Holy Spirit to grow you through the struggles, to awaken you to new insights or maybe new boundaries, new practices, habits you need to let go of to help you through the challenge. So you're a different person because how you make yourself available to God because of the struggle. Or as I say sometimes, if you don't deal with it in faith with God, changing your zip code, zip code doesn't change anything. The same problems can surface. We call this naturally cycles in family systems. We talk about cycles and patterns of abuse or, you know, well, they're just like that because that's what their dad is like or that's what their mom was like or that's what their relationships are like. So it's about being sober, about an intentionality of self-control over just self-indulgence. Thirdly, to set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. I, I love the way Eugene Peterson gives us a lens into this text. Here's what Peterson says. Holy living demands a large awareness of the world from the perspective of divine action. It sets its hope on the grace revealed in Jesus Christ. A large awareness of the world from the divine action. In other words, friends, are you a functional atheist? And what I mean by that is this. Functional atheism is practiced even by believers in Christ when they say they believe in God, that God is active in the world, that God is active here, and yet their actions and thoughts are like everything depends upon them alone. Do you expect a divine interaction or a divine partnership in whatever's there? Our hope is grounded on Christ. You see, grace is God giving to us not what we deserve or earn, but gives us life through Christ as a gift. Grace is God's faithfulness to pursue us when we wander and walk away like Peter, and yet God pursues Peter, even in the resurrection when he goes back to fishing the way it used to be. Grace is God's forgiveness when we come spiritually limping back to him full of shame for what we have done so that God welcomes us like a prodigal child who's walked away, squandered everything, and come crumbling back. And when God sees us in the horizon in that parable, the father gathers up his robe and runs to meet the child, runs to meet the son. And before the son can unpack his rehearsed apology, it's the father who says, I know your heart. I know your back. It's a God who looks for you. That's what it means to set your hope on Christ, knowing that God's forgiveness is always available. 
Our hope isn't in ourselves, friends. Our hope is in God. And then the fourth thing that is instructed here is do not be conformed. So what's really fascinating about this idea of don't be conformed to your former passions or things in the world is that in the Greek, this, this word conformed literally is used when you would form something. In biblical times, you would pour something that would say, for example, a metal would be heated to a certain temperature to be liquid. It would be poured into a mold. When it cools and cools down and hardens, it takes the exact form of the mold when taken out. Right? So what Peter's telling us, a pursuit of holy living, a holiness of heart and life, is to choose not to simply be melted by everything and let the mold of TikTok, Facebook, Snapchat, or whatever that stuff is, to shape you, but to say, my mold is in the hands of the living God. Or my mold could be, as Ryan referred to, Philippians chapter 2. Here's the amazing thing about that text. The word that you used there about empt is, is emptied himself. He made himself nothing in your translation. It's uh, the Greek word is kinoo. It means to empty. In other words, what Jesus did on our behalf is that he emptied himself of his divine attributes. He still had them. He didn't claim them. He set them aside so that he might be faithful to the human journey, faithful as a servant to death, even death on a cross. So it was an intentional act. Jesus wasn't a victim. Jesus was the victor. And he set himself aside. So your mold is, how does the life of Christ become that mold? How is holy living, pursuing the holiness of heart and life, resist and reject the molds of our culture in order that we can respond, receive, and live in the grace of Christ? And what's fascinating is out of these four that Peter lists, three are positive and one is basically negative. Because when we think about holy living or holiness of heart of life or be a holy person, we tend to conjure up these Puritan kind of ideas. That holiness means there's a list of what not to do's, right? No buttons, you know, there used to be this old saying, don't, don't drink, cuss, don't drink, cuss, dance or spit or go with the girls that do. That was what was said back in my growing up as a joke. But there's these lists of don't do's, don't do's, don't do's. But what is this said? Peter in 3 says, look, here's what you need to do to shape, to form your life. Now, there is a part of which you have to realize what you're not supposed to do. But you catch that imagery that holy living is far more about the proactive steps that you take and less about a list of rules of what not to do. Or as Jesus said, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He said that in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And what's really amazing is when we think about what fills our life, do you remember what's at the end of that? Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be filled. Something is going to fill your life. What God's calling us to in the covenant is to be intentional. What Peter's calling to us is guard our minds and hearts so that we choose to be filled by the things of God. You see, friend, God's desire isn't to shame you. God's desire is to change you, to redeem your life. We all probably know John 3, 16. 3, 17 is just important. For God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Do you get that? That the purpose of the existence of the second person of the Trinity 
God with skin on in Jesus Christ was to come to redeem you. And if you want to get a sense of the significance of that passage, then rather than saying the world, put your name in there, that God so loved the world that he came to Max, that if Max would believe in him, he wouldn't perish but have eternal life. For God came not to condemn Max, hear that good news, brother, but to save you. Put your name in there, because that's who Christ is. Let's pray together. God, as we think about what it means to respond to your offer of covenant, would you awaken in each of us where we need to craft out space in our own lives to let the scriptures guide our daily steps? Would you help us know where we need to be more proactively protecting our minds? Would you help us to recognize where we need to be intentional about what we absorb in the models and molds around us? Would you help us evaluate where we truly put our hope? And would you help us to not slip back into the ways that do not reflect your love for us in Christ? For these things we pray in the name, the power, and the love of Christ our Lord. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen.